Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. There's a lot to accomplish before June when the Connecticut General Assembly wraps its regular session. Lawmakers are working on their revenue and spending plans, and the governor has his budget proposal. What priorities will make it in the final two-year budget? And how will members of the legislature's Black and Puerto Rican caucus help shape the budget and the bills that become law this year? Today, where we live, we talk to two members of the caucus. On the phone with us right now is State Representative Geraldo Reyes, a Democrat serving Waterbury and Chairman of the Legislative Black and Puerto Rican Caucus. Representative Reyes, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good morning for having me and to uh, all our Irish brothers and sisters. Happy St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> That's right. I hope you're wearing green. I am. <laughs> Also with us on Zoom, Senator Douglas McCrory. He represents parts of Hartford, Bloomfield, and Windsor, and he's co-chair of the General Assembly's Education Committee. Senator McCrory, welcome to the show. Good morning, and thanks for having me, Lucy, and, and, and good morning to all your listeners out there also. And thanks for again for having this conversation this morning. I appreciate you. Now, our listeners can also join the conversation. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Now, Representative Reyes, I'll start with you as a chair of the Legislative Black and Puerto Rican Caucus. I understand you have 32 members, and you have eight priorities. I wanted to start with COVID, because I'm talking to both you and the senator in the same week that the governor changed the vaccine distribution plan again, meaning that all residents over the age of 16 will be eligible to sign up starting April 5th. So Representative Reyes, I'm wondering what your reaction is to this new distribution plan. What are you hearing from your constituents? Do they have enough options to access this vaccine? Thank you very much for the uh, question. And, uh, you know, I'll be very honest. The, the changes the changes as they're happening, in my estimation, uh, are leaving. They're leaving a little bit of voids because, and I'll, and that I say that because, not everybody in the populations that they've already said would be eligible have even come close. You know, in the percentage wise, have come close. The 75 and older, the 65 and older, the 55 and older, they have a long way to go still. They, we all have a long way to go still. And the reason I say that is because. We, uh, uh, especially the communities of colors, know that we have been lagging in the percentage and number of vaccinations. And uh, it, it has been uh, it has not been lost on the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus uh, that uh, we took it upon ourselves to actually get involved in our community. We did the same thing with COVID when it came to the COVID testing. Uh, it, it's an educational piece first. And then, and then you get the folks to go get COVID tested. And it's the same thing's happening with the uh, vaccination. And so, you know, I, I believe that this last change uh, for, uh, by Governor Lamont simply is um, more of a catch-all because of the fact that I believe that it's uh, it, it's affected those that already had complications. 
and this is a way to uh, to to open up the door for those that already have previous existing conditions. Senator McCrory, uh, we know that black and brown Americans are more likely to die from COVID-19. They're also more likely to be essential workers. And so I would like to ask you the same question I asked Representative Reyes with this new distribution plan. Are you seeing the, the State Department of Public Health and other providers coming into these communities to get this vaccine to residents? Well, again, I think that was a great question. Um, I, and I'll be quite honest with you. Um, I'm not happy with the results. At the end of the day, I'm not happy with the results and the outcomes that we're getting from the vaccinators, those the hospitals, the clinics, the, the you know the uh, the, um, the pharmacies. The results are not getting where they need to. Our numbers are not good, especially in the black and brown community. Initially, the state was following the CDC guidelines around this vaccination, first starting with age and those with pre-existing conditions. And then all of a sudden, a week ago, we, we just stopped and we just we just we pivoted and just said we're only going to do age. Uh, and then the teachers came on, which was a, 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 a pivot from what the CDC guidelines. Were. And now we got a new guidelines coming out that everyone's going to be vaccinated by April 1st. I will just say this. We know this issue was coming. I think we should have been, did a better job of planning. I don't think we did a good job of outreach. I don't think we get, did a good job of educating the communities about this vaccine. And therefore you saw communities, especially communities where people were a little hesitant. I used the word hesitant, not saying they did not want to get the vaccine, but they were just a little hesitant. And how do you um, remove the hesitancy? You educate. You bring people in those communities who are the people who are comfortable with. You communicate to them the importance of this. We know in our communities there is a history with the lack of trust in the healthcare industry. So when you have a massive campaign like this, it requires a great deal of education, a great deal of outreach, and that wasn't done. And that's why the numbers are low in our community. It's not because we don't want the vaccine. We do want the vaccine. I've noticed that. Black and brown people do want that vaccine, but it's not accessible enough. And that therein lies the problem where we're not getting enough people in our community vaccinated. Representative Reyes, uh, we've heard from the state and, of course, the, the Biden administration that more doses are coming. And so in the beginning, definitely supply was a, could not keep up with demand. Are you feeling confident in these next several weeks uh, with uh, the promises of more doses in our state that you will see more of your constituents getting the vaccine? You know, that's a great question. Uh, I will tell you right now in the uh, greater Waterbury area that uh, that I where I'm watching it and monitoring very closely, uh, we absolutely do not have enough vaccines. And I am keeping my fingers crossed that the uh, that the uh, uh, the administration from Washington uh, is going to follow through and get more vaccines here. Um, I work closely with a couple of senators, senators, uh, excuse me, censors that are uh, distributing in communities of color and uh, working with people who uh, have not been able to negotiate VAMs. And uh, and now that I mentioned VAMs, I will also tell you that that has not been a, uh, a working entity in our community. And uh, many people have many complaints about VAMs and we can, that's a separate conversation. But I believe that uh, right now I'm working in particular with two centers right here in Waterbury, uh, outreach into communities of color 
and uh, we're we're limited to a hundred uh, uh, shots a week. We could, if we were given the supplies, be open every single day, given a hundred. Uh, and the, and the uh, backlog of people that already want the shots, as Senator McQuarrie already alluded to, people want the shot. We, we know we we're past the education. Uh, I think uh, a year of uh, pandemic and a year of information and a year of listening to the news and watching the media in all languages. I don't. I think people are past the uh, that uh, the fact that this is uh, real and that we need the vaccination. And now it's just a matter of getting it. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed that we can increase the number of doses here in Waterbury because I have a lot of people lined up to be uh, vaccinated and I just don't have the shots. When you talk about uh, the outreach, again, we've heard from the governor that there have been mobile clinics set up uh, or the fact that you have uh, local health directors and health districts uh, trying to arrange uh, these vaccine clinics within communities versus having people sign up on VAMS and driving all over the state. So, Senator McCrory, what do you want to see in terms of more outreach? Uh, Give us some examples. Um, so I've been working with a healthcare a company in, in the Hartford area that was willing to go door to door, right? Go door to door providing um, vaccines to individuals. I had this conversation with them. I had this conversation with the Department of Public Health. I had it with the governor's office. And unfortunately, we have that that company did not get the resources to do the work. So I would like to see more things like that. I would like to see. Um, um, more individuals coming to our community that have experience of working with our community, that are culturally competent, that can p- keep our community at ease when we go into these vaccines. And I think we need more. I think um, my colleague is absolutely right. We need more vaccines in our community. We know we have we we have pre-existing conditions. They exist. The data shows that. Um, but a lot of it is environmental. So we know that everyone needs the vaccine. So when we do that, yes, everyone across the state of Canada needs the vaccine and should get it. But you got to double down your efforts in the communities that are hurt the most. And that's what I need to see um, as we move forward. Doubling down the efforts of getting the, the vaccine in the arms of the people who have been hurt by this pandemic the most. You're hearing Senator Douglas McCrory again. He's co-chair of the General Assembly's Education Committee, a member of the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus here on Where We Live, as well as State Representative Geraldo Reyes, a Democrat serving Waterbury and chair of the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus. If you have a question for either of them, here's the number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I I wanted to move on to education. Uh, The Connecticut Mirror reporting a record drop in school enrollment this year. The number of students dropped more than 3%, almost 18,000 fewer students at a time when most schools have been learning from home at least part of the time and the lost students are disproportionately in the lowest performing school districts in our state. Uh, Senator McCrory, because you're co-chair of the Education Committee, you also work at the Capital Region Education Council. Can you talk about uh, what you're seeing in communities and your reaction that, you know, year on this pandemic, there are still uh, students that are being left behind? Great, great question. Um, So first of all, overall, the student population in the state of Connecticut has been declining because the student age population has been declining overall. But in some communities, and especially in our larger communities, the student population has been increasing. Um, so what we noticed during this pandemic uh, and virus, kids and having access, uh, uh, ability to get online um, and not showing up, the reality is 
those were the same kids that were not showing up during pre-COVID. These are the kids that were coming to school physically, but mentally have already checked out. They're the ones that don't raise, they, they did not raise their hand in class. They're the ones that were overlooked by their teachers. They're the ones that were overlooked by social worker administration. They were there. So I'm not surprised that when the COVID-19 hit and now they're staying home and all they had to do was log onto a computer, if they had it, because we noticed this COVID-19 um, highlighted and shed a, a, a light on so many disparities that we knew existed in education already, that the lack of access to um, technology, right? Broadband, having computers, having devices. We knew that that didn't exist in a lot of our, our large urban communities, but now was highlighted, not everyone knew. So I'm not surprised that a large number of students are not signing on. You're talking about students who are traumatized, who have been traumatized through COVID-19, where they're, they're a loss of a family members, loss of employment, not knowing where they're gonna live the next day, um, not know if they're gonna be evicted. These kids are dealing with that. They're seeing generational people in their communities lose their life. So our kids have been traumatized and they've been isolated for over a year. So it doesn't surprise me that so many are not um, turning on um, their device and using it. Many of them have multiple um, siblings in their homes. And one device and one broadband uh, WAN will, may not be enough. So it doesn't surprise me that um, so many kids are not tune, tuning in. Um, yeah, I'm not surprised at all. So what can be done, Senator McCrory? Um, outreach. I, what, there's a couple of things you can try to do. Um, outreach. I know some school districts are sending individuals to homes checking on um, um, students on, on a regular basis. That has worked. Some communities has, have all opened up um, what I call um, learning pods, where the kid might not come into the school because they feel their, 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 their family members or, they, or their parents don't feel comfortable sitting in school, but they might send them to a location outside of school where there's a small learning environment when you have an adult that can help them through the process. So doing things like that, being creative is very, uh, very good. But the outreach must maintain and alternative educational opportunities must main, be maintained. Mm. Representative Reyes, what are you seeing in the Waterbury area? And does this speak to the, the larger issue of there's all this stimulus money coming into the state of Connecticut that can maybe help with outreach, but that's short term. Thank you very much for the uh, question. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, I, I'm glad that you uh, started with Senator McCory, who's been an education champion in the state of Connecticut and uh, for the greater uh, Harper area for a long time. I I, uh, the, I just think that the pandemic uh, clearly showed what we already understood before the uh, pandemic was that there 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 is an educational divide, and um, and, and there and there were homes that were struggling long before the pandemic hit, and the pandemic uh, just put everything up under a huge magnifying glass that you could not choose to ignore, no matter how you look at it. And uh, to me. Um, there are still students. There are still students who are disconnected from school, and 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 then when I say that, I'm saying they may have their screen on, but they're not learning anything, and 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 it's just making the uh, to me, it's making the divide worse. And many in the first three to six months, when they were uh, when they went into a uh, computer or laptop handout, 
uh, and then they found out there was an internet problem. It, it, it just clearly shows you what a, what a difference. The state of Connecticut, which is not a large state, three and a half million people, it's not a very big state, but it just goes to show you uh, that even a state of our, of our size, uh, uh, where, where I believe that there is educational excellence in this state, but it's not being distributed fairly. And, and that will bring me back to my main point. That's why I believe that the ECS formula and the education uh, 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 budget that, uh, that the governor put out needs to be a little more fair. And that's where I really think that the, 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 the rubber hits the road. And, and, and I believe that we need to uh, continue to advocate for our communities. And I don't believe... I can speak for Water Bay, which is majorly underfunded. It may be the number one city underfunded in the state of Connecticut. And that's why um, I hear from the educators. I hear from the parents. And I hear from my colleagues up in the legislature. And it, it, it's, it clearly shows you that there's a divide. And we keep advocating for a fair and equitable educational funding opportunity for all in the state of Connecticut. And we will not, we will not deviate from that from that goal, and we will continue to advocate in that direction. A pick, pick up on that, Senator McCrory. Yeah. Representative Reyes is alluding to the governor's proposed budget, which suspended, I believe, for two years, efforts to boost funding for the educational cost-sharing grants. And so talk further about some of the priorities you want to see related to education. That's a good point. And, and I will say that I, I think um, initially when the governor came out with his budget and to hold back um, two years of ECS money, um, that can't, that just cannot happen. We we can't do that. We'll be behind once that's, this is something we cannot do. I don't think it, we can legally do it, but I, I'm, I'm almost comfortable that those ECS dollars will be put back in the budget over the next two years so we can maintain um, our ECS funding and, and actually try to do something to improve it. But I also want to go back to something you talked about um, during the COVID-19 education. Um, the state of Connecticut is going to receive uh, close to or over a billion dollars uh, for educational use due to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money that the state of Connecticut and our school districts did not plan for, did not budget for. And they have two years to spend it. So at this point, one of the pieces of legislation that we put forth is we're going to, and I know people hate mandates, but we're going to mandate and require our alliance districts, districts to provide educational services during the summer and educational resources and services during next school year and the following school year. Because this COVID slide we're going to have to deal with for the next three to four years. It's going to take us a great deal of time to come back from where we, where we were. We basically lost a year. And many of these kids were already a year, two, and three years behind. So we're going to require that our school districts, especially our alliance districts where our kids uh, are not achieving at the highest levels we would like to, to require those districts provide academic um, summer enrichment, summer school, after school enrichment when the school year starts for the next two years. We have the resources. We have the money. There's no excuses. We need to get it done.
Um, before we move on from education, uh, we heard from a listener on Facebook who writes, uh, there are indications the State Department of Ed's planning on making remote learning a permanent part of education going forward. Uh, Stephen writes, for many students, it's precisely, precisely the lack of in-person education that's causing harm. And most would agree that students need the social aspect of schools as mm -hmm. much as anything else. So why are, why is the state talking about options for kids to remain remote and as Stephen says, isolated and out of touch. Senator McCrory. 21st century learning. That's where we're moving to. It's not just in education. It's going to be in the workforce also. That I encourage, I believe, we the kids have to be in school to learn, especially our young kids. The best way of doing this is teacher in the classroom, student in the classroom. I believe that's the ultimate way. But I'm not, I'm not uh, unrealistic about how society is moving, how technology is advancing, and how we can use technology. And that's why we need to have all communities have the broadband, have the tools they need, have the computers, have the devices, so that if that is a part of education as we move forward, which I believe it is, that every kid, every community will be prepared. And let me also add another thing about um, what we're doing in education this year. We have enhanced our opportunities and outreach to diversify our teaching population in the state of Connecticut. Everyone knows, it's documented research, that all children learn better when they're taught by a diverse teaching population. We don't have a very diverse teaching population in the state of Connecticut. Less than 9% of the educators are educators of color. I believe it's 5% are Latino, 4% African-American. And when you break it down by gender, less than 1%, less than 1% of the educators in Connecticut are men of color. That means a lot of our young men do not have role models in their classroom. You can't be what you don't see. So one of the bills we're doing is minority teacher recruitment, and we're putting the dollars in to actually do that. And we have the programs in place to transition people who probably did not start their career in education, but want to switch into the um, career education because they know that education is and should be an equalizer, and they want to be a part of the change. So we have, we have created programs for people to come into this field and to diversify it, because we all know, number one, the most important person in a child's education is the person in front of their classroom. And we need that diversity. We need that cultural competency. We need that commitment and that calling that people have to want to become educators. I'll leave that again. Thank you. If you want to join the conversation, it's 888-720-9677. Uh, Senator McCrory, before we head into the break, you mentioned mandating uh, for Alliance districts to have summer school and other enrichments uh, to help uh, students who've fallen behind. How do you get teacher unions on board with that? That's a good question. Um, I believe that many of the school systems are already using, utilizing certified teachers to do the summer program, and you have to encourage it. But also, they, that these enrichment programs don't necessarily have to be taught by certified teachers. They can be taught by other people in the community who have the skill sets who want to do that. Um, I also I also believe that um, that these enrichment activities should include and not just be limited to just sports and remediation. Our students need to be exposed to worldly things. I re I'm looking at my experience as an elementary school kid in an urban community, a segregated school system. 
I had the best educational system, education I believe I had, because I was exposed to different things. We left our schools and went on field excursions. Some people call them field trips. We went places. I educate our teachers took a place. They exposed this thing. I don't think, I, matter of fact, I don't know say I'm think I know our kids are not getting the same experiences in school today that I got as a child. And too many times we are so focused on just testing and kids are sitting in, 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 a, in a chair and not exposing them to the worldly things, especially if they don't get those opportunities. So I will say there's multiple ways of doing it. It don't necessarily, these, these enrichment programs, these after school programs don't necessarily have to be done by certified teachers. It can be done by people who are experts in, um, in, in activities that will, that will attract our kids to, especially those activities that are un, unusual for our children to be a part of. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. With us today, Senator Douglas McCrory, co-chair of the General Assembly Education Committee. He represents parts of Hartford, Bloomfield, and Windsor. Also, State Representative Geraldo Reyes, a Democrat serving Waterbury and chair of the Legislative Black and Puerto Rican Caucus. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk more about some of the bills moving through the, the legislature, including a plan to delay parts of a police accountability law approved last summer. We'll talk about that right after the break. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. With me today, State Representative Geraldo Reyes, serving Waterbury and chairman of the Legislative Black and Puerto Rican Caucus, and also State Senator Douglas McCrory, who represents parts of Hartford, Bloomfield, and Windsor. He's co-chair of the General Assembly Education Committee. If you have a question for them, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, just yesterday, the State House voted to delay some of the start dates for police accountability law enacted last summer. Instead of April 1st, changes to the standards for use of deadly force would take effect January 1st of next year. This proposal still has to be voted on before the state Senate. Representative Reyes, I'll start with you. Why did this deadline need to be postponed? It's a great question. And uh, as we all know that the uh, uh, police accountability bill was one of the high profile bills in the last uh, legislative session. And the, the ideal the ideal that uh, that this particular bill needed to be tweaked comes from the from the, the uh, I'll say from the controversial end of it and uh, the ideal here is very simple that we don't want to uh, uh, put our community in harm's way but we also don't want to leave the police officers uh, guessing and wondering whether uh, what's too much force and what's not enough force. So I will credit the our, our judicial uh, committee led by uh, Senator Winfield and the Representative Stastrom to go back and work with the ranking members and work with that team to actually break down the, the, the language and allow for more time for that language to be actually implemented through, the, through all the police and law enforcement uh, departments uh, through the state and then the most important piece is to get everybody trained. And the reason why that's important is because the last thing we want is a, a, a defense where somebody is going to come up to a, uh, 
uh, with a defense that they weren't trained. And, uh, uh, you know, listen, it's 2021. And I know, and, and we've seen plenty of high-profile uh, murders, and, I'm, and I'll call them murders, uh, at the hands of law enforcement. And, and it's important that, uh, that this, this trend stops. And uh, if, it, if it requires taking a, stopping, taking a pause, and rewriting a piece of the legislation to actually define it, and then give them time to train, I'll live with that. But this police accountability bill was long overdue, and and in my estimation, is just the start. This will there will be more uh, pieces of legislation that will also continue to uh, uh, to address policing, law enforcement in the state of Connecticut. Senator McCrory, again, we heard Representative Reyes talk about uh, the need for uh, police uh, to have more training on this before it's enacted. What's your take as this bill now heads to the state Senate? Um, I want to give my um, colleagues, uh, my colleague, uh, props for his response. I think he hit the nail on the head. Uh, I think the original bill said that all the training had to be done by April. Uh, it's April in two weeks. That's just unrealistic. That's just not going to happen, right? We, we, all our police departments need much more time to implement this new policy. Um, but I'll say this, and, 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 and I hope I don't rub people the wrong way when I make this comment. Um, training is very important. Um, we know that uh, training is important. But I honestly believe with, with the so, so many high-profile cases that we've seen across this country, that there, in some cases, there is no amount of training you can give anyone, right? There's no amount of training in the world that is available to any individual to do some of the things that we saw happen in this country. Specifically, I'll talk about one that we know most is George Floyd case. There was not enough training in the world that you can give that officer or those officers. If you don't see the humanity in people, if you don't respect people and their humanity and see them as a human being, as a child of God, I can't train you enough not to do wrong to someone. But yes, I agree. Training is important. I agree. Defying a definition is extremely important, but this has come down to personal responsibility and holding each other accountable and holding the system accountable. This bill is trying to hold the system accountable. So yes, I want everyone to be trained. I want everyone to define what excessive force is. But at, at the end of the day, this is personal responsibility on the law enforcement officer, and it's the person is responsibility of us as policymakers to try to fix a system. When you talk about changes to a system, obviously racial justice has been front and center since uh, the killing of George Floyd and demonstrations not only in our state but around the country. So when we look at uh, how the governor has proposed uh, particular uh, things in his budget or some of the priorities, when we think about what it means to have equity, I I wanted to hear more from you about when we think about changing the system, not just focusing on law enforcement, but ways to help uh, communities that are are suffering that need more investment, Senator McCrory? Outstanding question. And, and, and I, I said this to everyone, all my colleagues, I said this to the governor's office, every piece of legislation that Douglas, Senator McCrory 
works on this year will have an equity focus, an equity focus, a focus. I will say this. I am so proud of President Biden. You know why? Because when President Biden got elected, one of his first first executive orders was executive order 13985. It was the order that's advancing racial equity and support for underserved communities through federal government. He did not make any excuses. He understood what was going on in this country. He understood the climate. And he knew that we need to change the way we do business in America. And this executive order provides support, requires the government to look at themselves, look at these marginalized communities, and not just look at them, but come up with a plan to do something about and change. That's leadership in this environment that we're in. Also, even in this last stimulus bill, I'll call it stimulus bills, CARES Act, what do you want? $1.9 trillion within there. There's $5 billion for black and and ethnic farmers. Why? Because USDA has been terrible in their behavior when it comes to farming. And what did this president do? He knew that. He didn't fight anybody. He put the resources in to help those farmers because he understood the need. That's called being intentional about issues. I would like to see that same enthusiasm and that same leadership here in the state of Connecticut, where we are intentional about solving the needs of these communities and changing these systems, whether it's education, healthcare, criminal justice, investment and opportunities, employment, access to capital. We need to change the way we've been doing business in Connecticut. And then we have to do it from a governmental perspective and from private entities. It is government and private entities that have redlined these communities and those redlined communities that continue to be redlined till this day. So it's going to take government and private entity to change it. And we need that type of leadership today. So when we put policies forward as Black and Puerto Rican caucus, as myself and other people, my colleagues who think like that, it will have an equity focus in making sure that those who need the most support get it. I want to take some calls. You can join us, uh, 888-720-9677 with State Senator Douglas McCrory and State Representative Geraldo Reyes. Uh, Greg is calling in from Waterbury. Greg, go ahead. Yeah, I just thought I had a question uh, regarding like, um, sort of the legality of this idea that you're going to um, you know, try to just focus on one racial group for, for recruiting for teachers. I mean, isn't that like discriminatory? Discriminatory to who? I, I, I don't understand the question because I don't. I don't think it's discriminatory at all. What I heard you say earlier was we need to recruit more teachers of color because the research shows that students do better with teachers that that resemble their, their ethnicity or race. Um, no. But isn't that if if your focus is just to recruit teachers based solely on their race, isn't that discriminatory? You want me to answer that, respond to that, Lucy? Uh, yes, quickly. So, no, absolutely, I don't think it's discriminatory at all. I, I if, if, you, if you listen to earlier, I said currently in the state of Connecticut, we have 91% of our teachers uh, identify themselves as white. And I think they do a very good job. But if I look at the research, the research shows that 
all children, whether you're black, white, yellow, brown, all children do better when they're taught by a diverse teaching population. That's what the research says. So if we want all our kids to do better, we need to diversify our teaching population. And yes, we do we do to recruit them. This is not something that's unique to Connecticut. This is unique to every state in the United States. We want all our kids to be able to be successful and actively prepare for a 21st century. That's why we changed and we modify in our curriculum and we create a curriculum because our kids didn't see themselves in the curriculum that it currently is. So I don't think it's discriminatory at all. I think it's great. I think we need to do more because I want all our kids to win. Senator McCrory, I wanted to get back on the equity question. Uh, you, you've given a lot of praise to the Biden administration, but you wanted to see more leadership here in our state. And I know you've been critical of the governor's uh, original cannabis proposal in his two-year budget. Again, uh, he also wants to look at expunging the criminal records of those convicted of cannabis-related offenses. But you took, uh, you wanted to see more of any cannabis revenue, if it's legalized, recreational marijuana, to go back into communities that have been impacted uh, by marijuana-related convictions. Will the legislature and the governor reach agreement on this before June? Let me say this. <laughs> yes, the governor came out with uh, uh, a cannabis policy. And, and, you know, I was very disappointed, of course. But you know what? It's just the first. It, it's, it's just that's just the initial offering. Right. It is up to us as legislators to retool that policy, fix it, make it equitable. And if we can get the votes to pass it, we'll do that. But I will tell you this. There is not a state in the United States that has done this as far as equity is concerned right. I've talked to Colorado. I talked to Illinois. I talked to people in all these states. No one has done it right. And I'll say this. If we are going to pass this, yes, those resources need to, should a portion, a good large portion, need to go back in those communities that been harmed the most. Those people have been harmed the most by this fake war on drugs. Yes, I do believe a huge equity component has to be a part of this cannabis bill, and it will be if it wants to pass. I think we cooler heads will prevail. I think we can get something across the finish line. I honestly believe that. State Senator Douglas McCrory, again, is co-chair of the General Assembly Education Committee. I know you have a public hearing to run in just yes. a few minutes. I want to thank you for your time today here on the show. I appreciate you. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Uh, Representative Reyes is still with us, uh, and he's chair of the Black and Puerto Rican caucus within the General Assembly. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes uh, as we move forward. What's a, one of the biggest priorities you want to see um, accomplished this session when we look at the caucus's priorities? The uh, the Black and Puerto Rican caucus has eight pillars at which it stands on, and the, at the very top of the pillar is if we don't take care of our population with the COVID-19 relief and reform, the other seven pillars won't matter. Secondly, the uh, uh, the the uh, what's going to come out of this thing here is uh, two major issues that I wanted to put on the table real quick, and it's the, it's the housing what the housing picture is going to look like, what the eviction, once the uh, courts open up here very shortly, 
what the evictions are going to be looking like. There's already a backlog, and, and there's going to be more coming. What is that going to be looking like? And um, there's a lot of work that's being done by uh, BP, BPRC and in the housing share in particular, Representative McGee. The, the third thing that I want to talk about, which is labor, which is our, our, our chair, Robin Porter, uh, is working on several key pieces of legislation, which will have to, very critical, will have to put uh, all communities, especially the youth, to try to work this summer because uh, 2020 was a loss and 2021 is going to be crucial, especially as we address the youth and the juvenile violence that's going on across the state of Connecticut. So um, these topics are shows of their own, but if we need to we need to get COVID-19 uh, vaccinations. We need to get uh, the housing situation uh, somewhat under control. It's going to be pretty messy here in the spring and summer. And then jobs for our youth and uh, bringing the economy back. So those are, I would say those are the top three, because if we take care of those top three, I think that we can uh, uh, sustain and fight through the others. But uh, I also wanted to mention to, to the caller from Waterbury that uh, said that uh, why, and it is a discriminatory, um, but but what he fails to look at and what he fails to say and hear is there are discriminatory practices in hiring in different states and uh, cities and towns in the state of Connecticut. And if you look at the breakdown, uh, racial breakdown in some districts, there are not that many minority people in the building, not even the janitor's minority. So it, 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 it's coming from a place that it has been unequitable to begin with. And now we're looking at an equity piece. And that's what people forget to look at. Mm. Representative Geraldo Reyes, again, chair of the Legislative Black and Puerto Rican Caucus, serving Waterbury. Thank you for your time today. Thank you very much for having me, Lucy. Thank you. This is where we live. Coming up next, we're going to talk to Christine Stewart from CT News Junkie at NBC Connecticut, who covers the state capitol and other issues, too. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You can be with us again on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from two members of the State Black and Puerto Rican Legislative Caucus. For more context, joining us now on Zoom, Christine Stewart, owner and editor-in-chief of Connecticut News Junkie, CT News Junkie, and a reporter for NBC Connecticut. Welcome back, Christine. Thanks for having me. We packed in a lot. How would you describe the governor's relationship with members of the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus? No, I think that he has a, a, you know, he is working on developing a relationship with all lawmakers in general. Remember, he had uh, 2019 and then the pandemic hit in 2020. So he's had a year away, for the most part, from having to deal with the legislature in general. So I don't think that we've gotten to see kind of the relationship that he's had to build. And the relationship he has built has been, for the most part, behind the scenes. Um, over the past year because, obviously, of the pandemic. Um, so I guess it kind of remains to be seen. I mean, we have maybe four more weeks of, of public hearings, and then they'll begin voting on uh, legislation in earnest here and looking at codifying some of uh, the governor's executive orders. They're going to be meeting on that tomorrow. It's interesting to hear uh, both Senator McCrory and Representative Reyes talk about uh, vaccinations in the communities they represent and still concerned about, you know, so many people eligible and how are they going to get to everyone, especially those that have been disproportionately impacted. 
Yeah, I think that we saw um, this week in New Haven that are on the weekend in New Haven, they started a door to door um, vaccine effort. Um, I think it's been frustrating for a lot of people because not only do you have to have um, the vaccines in the community, um, you also have to, there's also an educational element. Um, you, you can't forget the, the past history of, of vaccines and uh, some of these medical experimentations on the past um, of communities of color. And, you know, that, that lingers and you have to have trusted members of the community and churches and other places of, of leadership, um, you know, show that these vaccines are, are safe and um, that people should make the effort to um, get one. Uh, we talked briefly about uh, this proposal to delay part of the police accountability bill. Again, there was overwhelming support for this measure. When you look back at the summer and how the original bill really divided the General Assembly in so many demonstrations, is this a compromise that you think will make everyone happy, Christine? I don't think it's a compromise that's going to make everybody happy. I mean, I know that they went into this legislative session not necessarily wanting um wanting to compromise, but I think that, you know, obviously in the heat of the moment in a special session in July, um, you know, there was a few pieces of information that they didn't necessarily have, um, you know, training 9,000 municipal police officers in a new standard for use of deadly force um, is, is a daunting task and is going to take a while. And so I think that it was, um, realistic and pragmatic that they acknowledged that. Um, so I think that some of that has kind of some of the the hard feelings um, between the two sides have kind of eased during this these past few months. And what's the latest in terms of reaching agreement on uh, the legalization of cannabis? Again, we, you know, we hear from members like Senator McCrory who want to see uh, more of any expected revenue go back into communities that have been impacted by the drug war. I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you've been observing in terms of how the negotiating is going on. Yeah, so the negotiating, the, the two sides are really um, stuck on their positions at the moment. And, you know, that is, they are at a point where they are, um, the Black and Puerto Rican caucus, um, you know, Senator McCory didn't say this, but it seems that over some of these issues, they would be willing to, to kill the legislation, and they very well could. I, I mean, there's... Um, I think about 30 members of, of their caucus. And if they, they took their votes one way, um, you know, if it means not voting for the legislation to legalize marijuana because they were unable to um, get some of the, the equity funding measures or the uh, expungement measures, then, uh, you know, that, that's what they're, they're looking at at the moment. So we got the more serious topics out of the way. You want to talk about legislating while driving? <laughs> <laughs> it's a strange sign of the times, right? Um, this would only be happening in this year. Um, so the legislature is doing everything virtually and it's a part-time legislature. So people have second jobs and, you know, cramming in legislating and these virtual public hearings are much longer than they used to be. Right. And these committee hearings are much longer than they used to be because everybody has to go on Zoom and show their face and say whether they're voting yes or no. And so this has led to, you know, some lawmakers having to do this while they are driving. 
and you know leaders and this has happened to both parties and leaders um, at the legislature have had to issue warnings to lawmakers that you know if they are going to do this that they have to do this you know votes are being held open but you should also be safe and pull over and um, and park your car before um, you either speak or have to vote during um, during one of these meetings. That sounds dangerous. Give us some names. Who are the guilty parties here? <laughs> so we have Representative Jeff Luxemburg of, of Manchester, um, who during the Insurance and Real Estate Committee last week was uh, voting uh, on an amendment. And we also have Representative Rosa Rabimbus, a uh, Republican from Naugatuck, uh, who was questioning a witness during a Judiciary Committee public hearing um, while also watching the road from behind sunglasses. So, you know, the phone was down and you could see um, that she was driving. Um, so it's, it's again, a strange sign of the times and not safe. <laughs> we were unable to get the, um, Connecticut state police to comment on this, but I would say that this falls under the category of distracted driving and could probably, if witnessed by an officer, end up in some sort of infraction. Definitely. Well, Christine Stewart of CT News Junkie and NBC Connecticut, thank you for coming on to give us some more context on all of the issues before lawmakers. We appreciate it. Thank you. Today's show was produced by Matt Dwyer. Carmen Baskoff was on the phones. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Coming up tomorrow, jury duty is part of our civic duty, like voting. On the next Where We Live, the Connecticut judiciary is working to make jury pools more diverse, more representative of our communities. We talk with State Supreme Court Chief Justice Richard Robinson tomorrow. You can join us, too. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel.